This is hell. Oh, uh, are we starting up right now? I think you caught me off guard. That's no big deal. How are you, Dan? I'm doing super good. You want to go again? No, no, that's fine. I'm all, I'm all good. This I was is just, what live radio is all I about. I know, exactly. <laughs> Truly revolting radio. This is hell. And back in the 1980s, Chicago witnessed a revolution of sorts, but it was an electoral uprising against white supremacy in the form of the old guard of the Democratic Party machine, a machine that had controlled the city long before the first mayor, Daley, was voted into office way back in 1955. Daley just perfected the machine. After years of corruption, structural racism, and everything from the police to urban design, and white politicians using their power to unfairly and unequally control the city, as well as the lives of people of color, especially black residents, Chicago seemed to have had enough. All they needed was a candidate who could run representing their needs in the face of racism and corruption. That person who would run for mayor of Chicago on a platform of racial equity and become the first black mayor of Chicago in 1983 was Harold Washington. But on the campaign trail during the primaries throughout the general election and while in office, Mayor Washington, or at that point candidate Washington, would face that racism, that recalcitrance of the old white guard to allow even the slightest amount of their power to slip from their grasp, even if it went against the best interests of their own constituency. They would rather the entire city fail fail and not even function than allow a, a mayor to make attempts at equality and fairness. Yes, Washington's time in office was too short-lived, but we can reflect back upon it today and see how forward-thinking it really was and that the late mayor of Chicago was truly ahead of his time in a few minutes. We will be speaking with filmmaker Joe Winston, who is the director of the recently released Punch 9 for Harold Washington. Punch 9 for Harold Washington is currently showing at AMC theaters in the Chicago area, including New City, Ford City, and River East. Find out more about the movie at punch9movie.com. Punch9movie.com. This is Joe's second appearance on This Is Hell, having been on the show back in 2009 to discuss his film What's the Matter with Kansas, which is influenced by the Thomas Frank book of the same name. Joe was on uh, the show with us in studio, and during that conversation, we were joined by Tom Frank on the phone. He was a uh, Joe was a producer on Citizen Coke, which was nominated for a grand jury prize at the 2013 Sundance Film Festival. In 1999, Joe was nominated for an Emmy Award for his work on the PBS documentary Lost in America and What Happened Next on how the former industrial town of Lima, Ohio, adjusts painfully to the changing world economy. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, live streaming podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Dan Hill. Dan, how have you been? What's new about you? I've been good. Been spending a little time in my micro garage. Your micro garage? Yeah, I have a micro garage down in the basement of the condo. They give us like you know a little closet. Most, yeah. Most people probably use it for you know boxes for right? their bread machine and Christmas ornaments and stuff. But I have outfitted it with a, a pretty workable bicycle uh, stand, and I was doing work down there. It was fun. Oh, that's pretty good. I, when you said micro garage, I was going to say, dude, that's called a shed, and it's in your backyard. <laughs> so this is a storage space in your basement. It must be a pretty good-sized storage space if you can set up yeah. a bike repair area. I just, you got you to gotta stack vertically, you know? Like, uh, it's pretty small. It's like... It's about five feet by ten feet tops. Uh, no, it's probably like three feet by five feet, honestly. 
So. The, the first place I lived at with my girlfriend was over near uh, Argyle, right by the SNA Studios, the old uh, St. Augustine College. Uh-huh. Uh, and SNA Studios is where the original Charlie Chaplin films were uh, made. Oh, wow. And so that was, uh, so we lived right next to it. And when we moved in, we asked the landlord, uh, you know, hey, so he was living in the building. So do you have a? We get a storage space in the basement. And he said, Oh, yeah, you don't want to use the storage spaces in the basement. <laughs> We're like, Wow, they'll be broken into. And he goes, Yeah, just don't go into the basement. So we went into the basement, and the entire basement, all of the storage spaces, were made out into altars for the Latin kings. Oh wow! What is an altar exactly for the Latin kings? They have altars. Yeah, they look a lot like you know they'll have the. Uh, Virgin de Guadalupe candles, that kind of stuff. You how know. do you distinguish this from just run-of-the-mill Catholicism? Like? Exactly, right? Huge Latin king symbols all yeah. over the yeah, place, right above it. Yeah, you know, you I was like, wow, these these Catholics have broken into our storage spaces <laughs> and set up altars. And I noticed, hey, why are the letters LK everywhere here in little crowns? Holy cow! Yeah, very scary stuff. Um, for me, uh, very sadly, there's been a few more shootings in the neighborhood. Another teen was shot sitting on a park bench. Another couple of people were sitting in a car were shot with one dying. A local uh, liquor store owner was sitting in a or was a local liquor store owner was recently robbed it's just on Monday. A guy who I would uh, who would sell me beer and uh, I bought lottery tickets from him on a regular basis and uh, apparently during the robbery he was shot in the chest and died, including, uh, you know, there's another couple, two, maybe three more shootings in the neighborhood since late August. This is like the most gun violence I've seen around here since I moved into the area in 2003. I mean, back then there were open-air drug markets at both corners of my block, but there there weren't as many shootings as there are today, and I would trade open-air drug markets for shootings any day. Look, I know Fox News has been very busy exaggerating the violence on the streets of Chicago, indoctrinating people across the United States and around the world, from big cities to small towns, especially in small towns, and to the idea that, uh, you know, Chicago is like the mythical Wild West, and it's not. There are plenty of small towns that have much higher murder rates per capita than Chicago, but it's been getting a little bit hairy around here lately. Our condolences to the family of Salim Kamo, who died in the liquor store robbery attempt on Monday night. Salim had come to the United States from Iraq 30 years ago, according to reports. His son was quoted saying he wanted to retire to a farm on the outskirts of Chicago, raise chickens, have his grandkids come. He just wanted to have a place for his family. We came from Iraq, you know. We ran because we were refugees. We are Christian Assyrians from the Middle East. And he was just a proud man. He was not going to let, you know, someone bully him. There are reports that Salim recently obtained a FOID card, giving him the right to purchase and own a gun, which he had done telling friends and family that the increase in crime in the neighborhood had him concerned about his store and his own personal safety. Salim also reportedly refused to give the robber any money, so the robber took Salim's life. The concern in the community now is that the shooter will kill again. Block Club Chicago and local CBS News have more information on the case if you want to find out more. So on that very, very, very somber note, please remind us, Dan, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? Boy, that's tough. Yeah. 
This week's question from hell is, considering all of the crises we are experiencing today, from wars to pandemics to climate change and everything in between, as we approach Halloween, what trick-or-treater costume would frighten you the most? So when I wrote that question from hell on Sunday, I did not know of all the violence that was taking place at that point in time, and so I probably should have added, considering all of the shootings that are taking place as well. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever this is hell swag you want. The This Is Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, the face mask, the coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie or toque if you prefer, as well as the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can check out all our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. Or you can email chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth. During this week's moment, Jeff unveils the super truth about angels speaking through deli meats. And he's going to be doing that live in studio with us. I totally forgot that Jeff's itinerary and that he was going to be showing up this morning. So right before we went on the air, that's what kind of threw me off at the beginning. Jeff showed up. I thought he was a guy who was repairing our lock. Nope. My vision was wrong. It was Jeff Dorchin. Coming up, Joe Winston on his new movie, Punch Nine for Harold Washington. Dan will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from hell. Again, the question from hell is considering all the crises we are experiencing today, from wars to pandemics to climate change and everything in between. As we approach Halloween, what trick-or-treater costume would frighten you the most? We'll also tell you what's happening on this week's Patreon podcast exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. Jeff, again, will be delivering this week's moment of truth, and we will tell you who we have scheduled to be on next week's show. All of that coming up here on This Is Hell. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell Sanity and Talk Radio. So clearly and sadly, Gnome's gone insane. This is hell. Harold Washington, as a black candidate for mayor of Chicago, faced racism during the primaries, which he overcame. He faced racism in the general election, which he overcame. He even faced racism as a child, which he overcame. He faced racism while in office, which he overcame. He, he faced racism from the Republican National Camp, uh, Committee, while he ran for office and from racist policies of the Reagan administration that his opponents cynically used in a plot to get him out of office while making the city and all its citizens suffer from dysfunction. Yet, through it all, Harold Washington had a vision, a political agenda of what he called racial equity, here to help us have a better understanding of Chicago's first black mayor, Harold Washington. Filmmaker Joe Winston is the director of the recently released Punch Nine for Harold Washington. It is currently showing at AMC theaters here in Chicago and around the United States. Here in Chicago, it's showing at New City, Ford City, and River East, so check wherever you find your theater times to see where it's playing near you. You can find out more about the movie at punch9movie.com. And uh, back, and we had uh, Joe was on the show uh, back in 19, or 2009. Discuss his film, "What's the Matter with Kansas," which is influenced by the Thomas Frank book of the same name. And Joe was on the show back then. Here, you know, it was on in studio. And during that conversation, we were joined by Tom Frank on the phone. 
And that is going to be this week's interview on Patreon. Again, the only way you'll be able to hear that is by subscribing to patreon.com slash thisishell, and I'll be telling you more about what we'll be playing on Patreon following our interview with Joe. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Joe. Chuck, thanks so much for having me. It's great to have you, even though you're not in the studio. It's great to have you on the line. What, what, do, you, what do you think it was about the history of Chicago that made the first black mayor of Chicago being elected so historic? I mean, mayor of Washington was elected in 1983. Is it more about just his race? Is there something besides for just him being the, black, the first black mayor? Is this more than just about identity politics about Harold Washington becoming the first black mayor? Sure, Chuck, there's a couple of things I think that are worth taking into account. So one thing was certainly the racial makeup of Chicago, right? I think at the time in 1983, the census would have had the city about 40% each white and African-American with the remaining 20% being divided among other ethnic groups, mostly Latinos. So you had a large group in Chicago who had been held back by the Richard J. Daley political machine. And as we portray in Punch Nine, when Mayor Richard J. Daley died, his organization started to crumble. His successors were demonstrably incompetent at kind of holding everything together and frankly at running the city. And so I think there was an opening for someone to challenge the machine. You know, the machine was just not as powerful as it had been in sort of the arrangements that they had right to distribute certain limited powers to each ethnic group that was part of it including african-americans right there were african-american city council members and other politicians at the time right who including harold washington as a state legislator right they could they could stay they could they could be in the machine as long as they stayed in their lane right but the other thing that was happening of course is that the civil rights movements from the 60s in Chicago, which were very vibrant, was one reason why Dr. King chose to come here to try to bring his campaign to the North, was because there were a number of strong organizations already at work locally. You know, these people didn't stop, right? There were organizations all over the city, in and not just in black neighborhoods, but all sorts of all sorts of parts of the city, right? Rallying the community, trying to make things better. So certainly the way I see it is that once you no longer had such a strong, revered, and beloved figure as Richard J. Daley to keep the old order going, there was a possibility to make things better, and there were a lot of people working really hard to make it happen, and they found their standard bearer in Harold Washington. So I would assume from your movie, because you also talk about the corruption within the Daley administration, that this corruption was a component in what you call the incompetence of the Democratic machine here in Chicago. <laughs> so why was the uh, why was it so sustainable? Why was the Democratic machine sustainable if it was so incompetent and corrupt? Was it about to collapse and fail no matter who took office? Well, that's an interesting uh, historical question. I mean, the way I see it, so a couple things. I mean, I don't think anybody would call Mayor Richard J. Daley incompetent. I think he was actually remarkable in his talents as far as not just running a political organization, but, you know, the whole city that works slogan that came about in his reign. I mean, there was some truth to that, right? It worked on, I mean, it certainly lots of people were left out, but that, that that was, you know, he was exceptional, right? He was maybe the, the exception that proves the rule. He was famous for memorizing almost every single city employee, precinct captain, you know, things that most people cannot pull off, right? And he was familiar with 
Richard Jay, he was familiar with all the neighborhoods. He was familiar with the workings of government and finances and that kind of thing. And he was also just historically, right, he was buoyed by high government spending, high levels of government spending in the, the 50s and 60s, right? And by the 70s, if you remember, Chuck, what the city was like back then, it was already starting to look pretty shabby. There was real underinvestment. This, this, this huge federal largesse was already starting to dry up. And when Reagan took office, you know, forget it, right? Ketchup is a vegetable. You know, Reagan took all the goodies away. The film begins with a, a very foreshadowing 1967 quote from Martin Luther King, which is, with each modest advance, the white population promptly raises the argument that the Negro has come far enough. Each step forward accents an ever-present tendency to backlash. What do we miss in our understanding and even celebration of civil rights victories when we do not recognize that every victory came with a backlash, often leading to three steps forward and at least, at least two steps back? The victories were tremendous, but how much does the backlash nullify those victories for the rights of black people? You know, I mean, the ending of the Harold Washington story, right, was a big challenge for us in our storytelling as a filmmaking team, because the ending is so sad, right? When Harold dies and his coalition immediately fractures and it's not long before the son of Daly uh, is swept into power. And it seems that many of Washington's, not all, but that a number of Washington's reforms will be reversed. So that's a bitter pill to swallow for those of us who believe in progress. And I guess for me, the the saliency and and you know value in telling Harold Washington's story is to see both what is possible, right? That what people can do when they get together and you have good leadership, and also a cautionary tale of what we're fighting against. I couldn't help but think about the campaign of Bernie Sanders and how so many people were concerned that if Bernie Sanders dies, that's the end of the move towards progressivism or democratic socialism, whatever you want to call it, because he is the leading person and there isn't a structure behind him to pick up the gauntlet if he did pass away. Do you think that that's very much the same situation with Harold Washington, that he was the charismatic figure that was pushing this agenda of racial equity, but as soon as he was not around, the campaign was dependent on him too much and it collapsed? I think, Chuck, that a lot of Washington supporters would say, in hindsight, that they depended too much on him as a singular figure to hold everything together. Uh, you know, th- there's all, all sorts of aphorisms about uh, Democrats, much less you know progressives and radicals, right, being fractious, right? There was the the, the Harold Washington Coalition were many different groups, not just African Americans, right, who had many competing interests, and he hadn't been in power very long. So yeah, there was definitely no structure to succeed him. The Harold Washington moment really depended on his singular talents to hold everything together. And of course, when he was succeeded by Eugene Sawyer as mayor, who kind of gets a bad rap, but the guy was doomed, as I see it, just by virtue of how he came into office. Not to mention, they called him Mayor Mumbles, right? He didn't have the kind of charisma of a Washington. It would have taken somebody truly remarkable to kind of keep it going. 
Mayor of Washington ran, ran on a campaign of anti-racism and what he called racial equity. Today, an explicitly anti-racist candidate would be attacked nightly on Fox News Channel. How much concern was there in the conservative white media, both locally and nationally, about Washington's campaign and the possibility he would be elected? Sure. I mean, it's interesting that the media was very different back in 1983, right? The fairness doctrine was still in place. It would be a few years before Reagan would abolish it. And so, and you had far fewer media outlets, right? For both good and ill, you had fewer voices. And certainly establishment media in Chicago was pretty horrified, I would th- say, uh, for the most part, by the Washington candidacy. Monroe Anderson, one of the only black journalists writing at the Chicago Tribune, has a story he tells, not for us, but in other uh, tellings of the Harold Washington story about what the Tribune newsroom was like. That it was like a funeral after Harold won the primary and you could hear a pin drop from all the white reporters who were not fans, shall we say. And, and Harold's treatment by the news media at large, again, there were very few black reporters at City Hall and there were very few that were really sympathetic to what he was trying to do. They were comfortable with the old arrangements you know, Laura Washington, uh, another key interview in our film, tells us that that even if even if the reporters weren't racist, they were just used to the old way of doing things and were not necessarily comfortable with change. So Harold battled the media throughout his uh, candidacy and certainly throughout his tenure as mayor. They, they tended to sensationalize the council wars, right, a term coined by comedian Aaron Freeman. And they tend the media tended to focus on the spectacle and disorder. You still hear that, right? It's as soon as Chicago has a black mayor, suddenly it's a city in chaos, right? And it's the black mayor's fault, implicitly or explicitly. And that was definitely something that Harold Washington had to contend with. So, what do you think that that reveals about local media at the time? Would it be go? Would it go? Would I be going too far by saying that it reveals that local media at the time was? white supremacist or defending of white supremacy within the halls of power in the city of Chicago? Well, the old liberal critique, right, of the media monopolies, right, that uh, that kind of fueled the sort of optimistic early days of social media and blogs and things like that, right, was the idea that the old media is controlled by these giant corporations and consciously or unconsciously the people who write for them and report for them have the corporation's interests in mind, Right. That was the old critique, right? Which still probably has some some validity. I mean, when I certainly when you go back and read the coverage, some of it's better than others. But yeah, I would say that it's structural. It was structural at the time, is that the the the, the media was run by pretty big companies, not as big as they would later become, right? And that they were they were comfortable with the old way of doing things. And they were certainly probably in bed with the, the business interests in town, the banking interests and that sort of thing. And it was a shock to them to have a black mayor, but it was even more of a shock to them to have a reform-minded mayor. And I, I think trying to untangle those two threads, I think is important in understanding Harold Washington. He was not just putting a black face on the old system. And as you were saying, you quote Chicago Sun-Times columnist Laura Washington saying that not only did Washington as a candidate for mayor call for racial equity, but he would have never become mayor if he were not uh, for decades of if it were not for decades of corruption under Mayor Daley. So it was about both corruption and racism. Was a vote for Washington a vote against racism or was it a vote against corruption? And or was it a, one vote for some people, people of color, it was a vote against racism, and another vote for other people, for white voters, it was about corruption. 
Yeah, the Washington campaign, interestingly, it was uh, some of his operatives, press secretaries and stuff would talk about as kind of early exercise and micro-targeting. I mean, Harold, I think, was very consistent in his message to voters himself, but certainly what was salient about his campaign was different in different communities, right? I don't think that there's any contradiction in saying that Harold Washington was for both undoing corruption and undoing racism. I see that I've come to see them as two sides of the same coin, sort of unfair kind of favoritism. So obviously for black Chicagoans, over a million of them at the time, the need to battle racism was most salient front and center. And, you know, that's just natural, right? So it was the so-called lakefront liberals who were kind of swing voters. They would have been very fine having Daly in there as they indeed reverted to form once Harold was dead. And those voters needed to be persuaded, uh, not just that it would be nice to have a black mayor in a city with a million black people, but that he was gonna do something about the corruption that they found distasteful. I remember Monroe Anderson telling me, he said, you know, it's not really maybe, maybe you shouldn't necessarily call them liberals. It was more like, these are people who are more educated, they travel more, and that the corruption in Chicago that was so notorious at the time and Fox News would have you believe still has unchanged. You know, it's embarrassing to them, right? It's unseemly. So this is obviously a lower priority than than uh, populations in the city who are being oppressed. So was Mayor Washington able to, even, even as a candidate, was he able to connect racism in Chicago, the institutional and structural racism that was occurring in Chicago, the corruption that was happening in Chicago, to the city's bottom line? Was he able to convince voters, especially up on the North Shore, that what was best for the future of Chicago, what was best for future investment, which what was best for the finances of the city was to not be racist, that that would be good for the economy? Is that the connection that he was able to make to get North Shore liberals to vote for him? This is, you hit on what I think Harold was so brilliant at, right? He had very strong, very simple ideas to sort of connect these two thoughts. So first of all, he tended to talk about fairness more than using words like racism. He was certainly not afraid to take that on at all. But, you know, fairness is a more all-encompassing umbrella. And he talked about how he would include every neighborhood, all the parts of the city, and how he would, he, at the time, he was trying to keep industrial jobs in Chicago. He, he had a really, uh, Harold had a really far-reaching vision that by including all the best talent from all parts of the city and by benefiting the most people that you could lift everyone up. And he was very eloquent about this. And I think that certainly in his elections, he was persuasive on the North Shore, not as much as maybe he should have been, <laughs> frankly. I mean, I, he's, I think he still probably lost the white vote in those areas, even running against the obscure Republican Bernie Epton. But he got enough votes. You know, he just needed enough because this was a majority black and brown city at that time. You give a brief history of the Richard J. Daley administration to provide the historical context for what Washington was being voted into, and you show Daley laugh-off questions about not doing enough to stop uh, segregation. The New York Times' Nicholas Lehman is quoted uh, describing Daley's national power that if any Democratic Party politician in D.C. wanted something passed and they wanted the most votes, all they did was they would call Mayor Richard J. Daley. Daly was a self-described law and order mayor. So what did the Chicago Democratic Party stand for while he was in office and prior to when he was in office? Was, it, was he liberal? Was he conservative? Where would you be able to place Richard J. Daley 
on the spectrum of political thought. I think Richard J. Daley's, his coalition was the New Deal coalition. It was the white working class, right? And then, I mean, of course, he was favorable towards the business class as well. But but really, that's where his his strength generally was. And so, you know, that doesn't exactly square neatly with today's versions of liberal and conservative. He was socially conservative, right? He was Catholic, Bridgeport. He was seemed to have been personally racist. He certainly was comfortable advocating racism and racist policies. So we would call him, we would label him conservative on that end. And then, you know, with his economics, uh, you know, he wasn't completely redistributive, but he was certainly in favor of workers and labor unions and that kind of thing. So it was a different, the coalitions were different. And it was, I think, ultimately the reorganizing sort of post-civil rights of the political coalitions in America that brought down Richard J. Daley. Of course, after the, the 68 convention, right, it all blew up in his face. And the next one, I don't think they even invited him, right? Because uh, he was considered an embarrassment to the party. The party had moved past him. The other interesting irony to Richard J. Daley is that it was Black voters and Black politicians who made his rise to mayor possible in the first place, right? It was... Um, Shoot, the leading black politician. He was a congressman. Uh, his name is escaping right uh, now. Dawson side. is his last name. Yes, yes. Uh, William Dawson. Right. He was he was the leading figure in the early fifties who engineered Daly uh, being made mayor because he hated because uh, Dawson hated the previous mayor whose name is also escaping me so much. He, he found him really unbearable, and uh, and and so er, early Daly's support came from black politicians and black voters. But uh, you know. He didn't stick by them. The idea that the trains ran on time under Richard J. Daley is mentioned in the film, but alongside Daley refusing to desegregate. How active was the Daley administration involved in uh, making certain Chicago was the most segregated city in the United States? Was it just the natural causes of economics and so forth, or was the Daley administration very actively involved in making certain that Chicago stayed the most segregated city in the United States? Well, of course, racial segregation has always in America been a matter of policy implemented from above, right? So in the 1940s, as there was urgent need for housing in Chicago, there was the Chicago Housing Authority was established and there was Elizabeth Wood, right? The famous early uh, head of the Housing Authority had a vision for sort of public housing projects that would be desirable places to live and scattered throughout the city and Daly made sure more than any other single figure made sure that that did not happen. Uh, and he built highways that separated black neighborhoods from white neighborhoods. And also, of course, there was at the federal level, there were policies, right? Undoving mortgages and redlining that made sure that um, black citizens of the United States had trouble buying homes and securing mortgages and that kind of thing. And certain, certain you know, areas of the city where African-Americans live were deemed undesirable by banks and not funded. So there were many forces working to segregate cities like Chicago. I mean, Chicago's not alone in this. I mean, some other cities in the industrial north, right, white population simply left, right? Left the city behind. But um, so Daly certainly would not have faced a pleasant task if he had wanted to integrate Chicago. It certainly was worth trying because the segregation was wrong and brutal and terrible and we're still suffering from it. But he certainly would not have faced a pleasant task convincing this what we called then i guess the white ethnics right to accept integrated neighborhoods it, it would it would have been a project and one that he was in no way prepared for 
the way that you describe how Daly literally redesigned the city of Chicago to enforce racial segregation is amazing. And and as you uh, point out, I'm certain that the same sort of process was happening across the United States, which is very enlightening, very eye-opening to realize that in the mid-20th century, there are mayors in big cities all over the country that were redesigning their cities to make certain that they would stay racist. You also quote uh, former Alderman Dick Mell saying that the power the Alderman has is unlike any power of any politician in the world when it comes to patronage and getting, getting people jobs. Mel says this is about race, sure, but it's more about power. Was enforcing racism a path to power during the Daley administration beginning in 1955? Among Chicago voters, was enforcing white supremacy politically popular? Well, I mean, it's popular among those who benefit, right? (laughs) And unpopular among those who, who suffer. You know, this so this question came up a lot when we were interviewing people for the film, and we talked to I think fifty different people. We sat down for usually an hour, hour and a half. Louis Gutierrez sat down for three hours, I think, before he even asked for a glass of water. But um, when we talked to people, you know, this would come up, right? Was this struggle that Harold Washington and his campaign and as mayor engaged in was it really about race or was it really about power? And I don't think, again, I don't think you need to actually have one or the other. The two are connected. The racism, this this is the thing that a lot of white liberals missed, I think, about the Obama presidency, is that racism is not just about white people being more polite or accepting one or two black people into whatever group, company, classroom, or whatever. You know, racism is a structure of power and oppression where one group is unfairly dominant over another. And so... The reason why Harold Washington was so threatening to the machine and to large parts of white Chicago was because that he intended and did change the arrangements of power and control in the city. A lot of people were critical following the election of uh, Barack Obama, saying that too many of his supporters were projecting their own hopes onto Barack Obama, which didn't necessarily reflect what his policies were, what he was saying during his campaign he would do as president. Do you find something similar when it comes to Harold Washington, that he was receiving the idea of hope from people without necessarily following what his policies were? Was he was he that kind of figurehead, or was it more about his substantive policymaking? This is where Harold Washington was truly remarkable. And it also has has to do with the difference between local politics, which are a little more bread and butter than national politics. When Harold Washington campaigned uh, for mayor in 1983, he had a policy agenda right with him. He had one of his leading policy advisors, Kari Moe, who's featured quite a bit in Punch Nine, not a well-known figure otherwise, but and, and some other folks who are no longer with us had crafted an entire policy agenda, which Harold published his first year in office it was called something like a vision for Chicago or a blueprint for Chicago of 1984. And it was very detailed and very specific. And it's actually worth going back and looking at because some of those ideas are still are still good ideas. So when Washington would campaign, you know, he would go to different parts of the city, even people who were not favorable inclined to him. We show a scene where he's in the 10th Ward in the steel mill territory on the southeast side, stronghold of Fast Eddie Verdoliak, all white audiences. They're booing him. They're visibly uncomfortable with him. They don't even want to shake, they don't want to shake his hand, but he's still talking to them about what their needs are. So he would go to each community and say, look, I've been in, you know, in office in one way or another for, for a number of years. 
you guys really need this, right? Whatever it is, jobs, streets, schools. And, and he was very specific. So I do think that, you know, and this was a highly mobilized election, 90% voter turnout in 1983 mayor's race, 90% among all of Chicago eligible voters turned out to vote one way or the other in a very close election. And they knew what they were voting for, I think. So you, uh, following uh, Daly's surprise death, as you show in the movie in 1976, the, while still in office, a new mayor was selected. The law states the council pro tem is supposed to become interim mayor. Therefore, Alderman William Fro- or Wilson Frost, a loyal Daly Democrat, was supposed to be mayor, but he was a black person, and the Democratic Party literally locked him out of the mayor's office and picked a white daily supporter, Michael Balandic. You quote Harold Washington at the time saying that the only thing keeping Frost from being mayor was that he was not white. Was the Democratic Party not only very racist, but also the only way for African-Americans to attain any political power within the city? Well, everything happened within the party, for sure. I mean, I guess there were some Republicans in Chicago in 1976, but not very many. There was probably, I think there might have been one Republican alderman somewhere near O'Hare. I don't know if those are the right years. But anyway, yeah, the Wilson Frost episode was really stark in showing how the machine politicians were happy to sweep somebody out of the way who who they didn't want. I mean, he was well-liked, Wilson Frost, and he was he was no radical, you know, he was just, he was one of them. He was a go along, get along kind of guy, you know, loyal member of the machine, the president pro tem. So that was the black position, right? They would give like, there were certain positions that were given out to certain ethnic groups. And this was a a considered a fairly weak position. It was given to a black politician. So it was Wilson Frost's turn to, to hold it. But the, in the, in the chaos following Daly's death, you know, there really wasn't one single clear written out procedure to follow. So everything was negotiable and it was just backroom dealing and power kind of ruled the day. And it, cert- it certainly showed where everybody stood. You know, it made it really clear and it definitely angered uh, black Chicago, as you can understand. We are speaking with filmmaker Joe Winston, who is the director of the recently released Punch 9 for Harold Washington, which is currently showing at AMC theaters in the Chicago area, including New City, Ford City, and River East. Check your local listings wherever you are across the country to see where Punch 9 for Harold Washington is playing near you. You can find out more about the movie at punch9movie.com. Uh, a historic snowstorm while Michael Balandic was mayor following the death of Mayor Richard J. Daley led to, uh, you know, this administration or his administration deciding during the storm to shut down uh, a lot of train service in the city and out to the suburbs. This uh, disproportionately affected black neighborhoods and residents. You show a clip of African-Americans waiting downtown for the L at L stops in the snow as empty trains just go right by them. This decision leads to Jane Byrne running for office on promises of helping out the black community. Laura Washington says that black voters were not yet ready to vote for a black mayor, so they voted for Byrne, who made promises she would help. However, Byrne immediately went against those promises, including helping the people who helped her get elected, namely African-American voters who voted for her two to one. Upon taking office, she broke every promise that she had made to the black community, Was this seen by black voters as a betrayal and the final straw when it came to supporting a white candidate for mayor? Did Jane Byrne's broken promises cause Harold Washington to be the first black mayor of Chicago? 
Yeah, I think there's no question that what happened under the Byrne years was pivotal. You know, Harold had actually run for mayor of Chicago before. He ran, there was a, so when, when Daly, Richard J. Daly died and uh, Belandic was appointed, Alderman Belandic was appointed to succeed him, there was a the part of the rules where there had to be an, an actual election a couple of months later. I think it was in March of 77. And there was a whole bunch of candidates ran, just like you see in elections today, where there's no, not necessarily so much of a clear front runner. There was, you know, a dozen candidates and Harold was one of them. And he came in third, winning, I think, five or six wards, mostly black wards. So he he knew that's one of the reasons Harold was so reluctant to run for mayor a second time in 1983. He needed to know, he needed reassurance that the community was behind him, the business community would be behind him, and that there was a level of organization which would allow him to run and be the first independent candidate to win in Chicago in God knows how many decades, right? Um, so certainly, yeah, Byrne was, you know, Belandic and Byrne, I mean, they were the ones I had referred to as demonstrably incompetent. I mean, they were, they were the last straw, right? And Byrne in particular was, was explicitly lifted into office by black voters and then turned on them. And, and nothing could have been more clear that, uh, to that community that, that they needed to find somebody else. So I just want to share this very funny, quick story with you. Uh, Alderman Dick Simpson was my next door neighbor. He was a pro-Washington alderman on the North Shore. Uh, He was my next door neighbor. And one day, Jane Byrne came around and was knocking on everybody's doors to support the opposition to our local alderman at the time. Uh, Jean Schulter. And so uh, she was at my door and I couldn't believe here's Jane Byrne, this person who's part of Chicago history, talking to me at my front door. So she leaves. And I noticed that when she leaves, she doesn't go next door and knock on Dick Simpson's door, which did not surprise me. And uh, Dick Simpson came up, came up to me later and he said, did I see you shaking hands with Jane Byrne on your front porch yesterday? He was, he was very upset about it. Very upset about it. So, Byrne, Dick, Dick is a great guy, and he was helpful in making this film, and he appears in it. Yeah, he's fantastic. He really is fantastic. I really enjoy that guy. There's a, a documentary, a PBS documentary about Daly, where Dick Simpson makes a really great appearance, uh, and people try to drag him off of the city council floor. And uh, Dick Simpson's a little bit too big to be dragged off the city council floor. It's very entertaining. So, Byrne appointed additional white people to positions on boards like those overseeing public housing, appointees who black aldermen were openly calling racist. She even poured money into police, including police who are racist, violent offenders, repeat racist, violent offenders against black citizens. Did Byrne continue, if not worsen the conditions begun by Mayor Daley for, uh, you know, uh, to make an an anti-racist candidate to uh, succeed? To what degree was was Harold Washington's victory due to a rising and expanding police state in black communities of Chicago, not just under Daley, but then again under Byrne? There's no doubt that all of that was becoming much worse, the, the, the use of the powers of police. Look, it's an issue that doesn't go away, right? I mean, I think that's probably one of the eeriest things about watching Punch 9 is that during the 1983 campaign, there was this, this uh, one of the four hour-long debates that the Democratic candidates, the three Democratic candidates had, was centered around police and public safety, those issues. And it was in front of a live audience on the South Side, maybe Kennedy King College or someplace like that. 
and it's quite contentious and Harold shines because he's able he's able to clearly and forthrightly address the issues whereas Byrne and Daly are trying to dodge them of course there were terrible dark things happening in the city in those days that nobody really knew about right the the, the John Burge era of torture that's now needs to be taught in public schools so that hopefully it doesn't happen again there was no question that that the things were were going down and it was you know there were conservative winds blowing from Washington right um that would the, the era of mass incarceration I think was probably just starting to ramp up under Reagan so yeah things were not getting better in Chicago for its African-American citizens and, and clearly something needed to be done while in the U.S. Congress Harold Washington was a critic of Reaganomics which have been very destructive over the past 40 years he wanted better immigration po- policies, which was, you know, were never achieved and still remain a problem today for both Democrats and Republicans alike. He was opposed to policy in Central America, which history shows supported corrupt dictatorships at the time. He was critical of huge increases in defense spending while slashing social services, which was proven to be a disaster for people who are the most vulnerable. Relative to the time when he was a congressman in the early 80s, where would you put Harold Washington on the political spectrum? Was he echoing party positions and priorities, or did he have his own somewhat independent agenda from the Democratic Party? I think, again, a remarkable thing about Harold Washington, especially by the time he was in his early 60s when he became a congressman and then mayor of Chicago, was that he had really well-thought political philosophy. And I actually, we found an interview with him, one where somebody asked him if he's a liberal and he kind of hems and haws about it, which is interesting because liberals have been hemming, hawing about being liberals for 40 years now. Um, But I think what he meant in his context was he certainly didn't like the idea of being pigeonholed. He was not somebody who, in politics, who just sort of takes a party platform and says, okay, those are my marching orders, off I go. I mean, you know, Harold, he was, his dad was a precinct captain. Right. And as a teenager, Harold was following his dad around, knocking on doors. He attended Roosevelt College. It was then not yet a university in the 1940s with a really remarkable group, integrated group of very brilliant people, blacks, whites, Jews, women. You know, you didn't find those in college campuses together in those days. And they were staging sit-ins and demonstrations in the loop in the 1940s. Right. And so Harold had been thinking about how to make the world better for a long, long time by the time he became mayor of Chicago. How much was the black community risking by supporting neither of the white candidates? This becomes a huge controversy that they're not going to uh, be supporting against a a mayor who would be Mayor uh, Harold Washington. The two people running against him were Jane Byrne and Richard M. Daley, Richard J. Daley's son. And the black community made this very, you know, purposeful decision to not support either one of the black candidates. What would have happened if Daly and Byrne had won the primary and one of them became mayor while the black community voted for a black candidate? How much risk were black voters taking? Because, I mean, these are going to be policies that are going to directly affect the lives of the black community. How much risk were they taking by not supporting one of the white candidates? It's hard to say. I think the risk was probably most keenly felt by the black politicians, right? The blacks uh, who were in office at the time who had all come up through the machine. And that was kind of what they were used to. And certainly they were risking having their assignments stripped from them, committee assignments and privileges and perks and patronage jobs taken away from them. Uh, I think that's certainly true. And, And that 
that would have trickled down to their communities who would have benefited less from the spoils system, right? This is what Harold undid. The idea that politics in Chicago would be a spoil system where the winners get the spoils and the losers go home. So who knows? Washington wins the primary. And as you show overnight, the vast majority of the Democratic Party in Chicago, or at least the white guard of the Democratic Party in Chicago, overnight they become Republicans and they supported former Illinois State Congressman Bernie Epton, who won the Republican primary over someone named Spanky the Clown. Do you think this was driven by an irrational fear founded on racism, even white supremacy, or was this seen as a threat to power in City Hall and within the Democratic Party? Again, we talked about this earlier, but was this about racism or power when it comes to supporting Bernie Epton's campaign? Yeah, the Epton campaign, you could make a whole movie just about that. I mean, he's kind of a fascinating figure because... You know, he and Harold were friends. They had served in Congress together. He's Jewish, right, Epton. And he was liberal on specifically on issues of civil rights going back to the 40s, uh, which is why we have his son spoke spoke with us. I think one of the first times he's been interviewed about the campaign and its effect on his family. And he breaks down and he cries when he sees what his father has wrought intentionally or not. Certainly for the white politicians who supported Epton, it was about power. I mean, the stories from the time are that they were sensing that their communities, right, the voters, were simply not going to come around to Washington's side. So, you know, the machine politicians, the eddies and people like that, they certainly sensed, look, Epton, if he was mayor, was going to be a very weak mayor. He was in the wrong political party at a time when parties still mattered. If you look back at his platform, I don't know what his platform was. I mean, he had originally run for mayor in 83, expecting to get 5% of the vote and just talk some stuff about good government and balancing the budget, right? I mean, his 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 rallies, Epton's rallies, basically were like, "Look at me, vote for me." I mean, there, there's no substance to to them, at least in terms of what survives, right? He had programs, so clearly on the level of voters, it was pure racism that the white voters in many neighborhoods of Chicago were convinced that if a black politician, especially reform-minded, tough one like Harold Washington came to power, that they were going to lose. And I would argue this is a form of projection on their part for what, that, uh, as again, Monroe, I think, put it to me, that these white voters were afraid that blacks would do to them as they had been doing to the blacks for decades. You were just mentioning Bernie Epton's son uh, in tears talking about his father, and he said he went to a rally where people were cheering the name Bernie, Bernie, Bernie over and over again. And he compares that rally to Nuremberg. Laurie Washington uh, says there was a lot of fear in the black or in the white community of racial equity. You point out, to, you point towards the you know the racist propaganda against Harold Washington. What you were just you were touching on this just a little bit about how white Chicagoans thought that the black leadership would do to them what they had done to the black community within Chicago. But what do you think was so scary to white Chicagoans about racial equity? What were they, you know, exaggerating their fears over? What were they thinking would happen? Because you show a lot of, you know, the stuff that used to be in the Harold Washington Library on the top floor. There used to be a little museum about the racist propaganda and about the Harold Washington uh, campaign and mayoral years. Uh, so what, what do you think was so scary to white Chicagoans, exaggerated or not, about racial equity? Look, this is something, again, that's very potent, I think, about the Harold Washington story, because this reaction is familiar to us, right, in the Trump voters of today. 
These are voters, white voters, who have this impression that the pie is limited in size and you got to grab whatever slice you can because others are going to take it away from you. I mean, that's fear. This is fear-based politics. And it's been with us probably since the founding of the country. And it's it's that's what Washington had to fight against. That's why he talked about fairness. And he did win people over. It was hard work. You know, he was seven days a week. He was out at every neighborhood. And Mayor Washington, he went to white neighborhoods more than neighborhoods of his supporters to address people's needs and to show them what fairness meant that did not mean taking away their share of the pie, but in fact, lifting everyone up through equal and open participation in government, taking it away from the cronies, the apparatchiks and the corrupt individuals and bringing it to the people, you know, true populist, liberal kind of vision of governing for everyone. And, and by the time he died, Harold was, was much more popular. I mean, he was much more broadly accepted in Chicago and many white voters, and we heard stories about this too, who had been terrified of his candidacy became quite comfortable with him as mayor and would have probably been happy to have him around for a long time. At Washington's inauguration, after he beats Epton by just a little bit over four points, he announces that the outgoing Mayor Jane Byrne had given out hundreds of city jobs, included administrative positions, and that he would be immediately relieving all of those people of their posts. And he mentions this during his inauguration, while Mayor Byrne is sitting right next to the podium where he is speaking. She's sitting there right on stage. As Laura Washington states, he threw down the gauntlet. Alderman Mel then explains how the old white Democratic Party and council members would do everything they could to cut the Washington administration off at the knees in city council. There were 29 anti-Washington aldermen in city council and 21 Washington supporters, which doesn't reflect the four-point victory, obviously, by Washington. Was cooperation between the pro-Washington and anti-Washington sides within city council, was cooperation off the table from both sides from the very beginning of the Washington administration and his opposition had the advantage? Is that what the state was that when he stepped into office? Yeah, we show this. This is one of our high moments of drama in the film, that the very first city council meeting that Washington presided over as mayor, just a few days after his inauguration, that that's when it kind of all fell apart. He knew, the mayor knew that he did not have a working majority in the council, which would have made him the first mayor to, to lack a majority again in a very, very long time. And, you know, he was just out of time, you know, they had to have this meeting and, and that was where what Washington had this gambit where he tried to end the meeting immediately so that he could do some more negotiating one-on-one with council members. He, he was very disappointed at the time. If you read Gary Rivlin's wonderful book, Fire on the Prairie, there are many other books about Harold Washington, but his, his is sort of my favorite. Um, you know, Washington was surprised at some of the what he considered sort of the daily Democrats, as opposed to maybe Byrne, Verdoliak Democrats, who abandoned him in the council wars. And there were some that were sort of on the fence. A guy, Pat O'Connor, who only recently was voted out of office in the 40th Ward uh, on the north side, was sort of on the fence and might have come to Washington's side if he hadn't had so much pressure, both from the top, from Eddie Verdoliak and Ed Burke, and perhaps from his community as well. So, you know, it was, it was it was complicated, but definitely to me, I can't think of an earlier example of the, the strategy of total obstruction that Eddie Verdoliak put together 
keeping his people very firmly in line. It was like a blood oath. I, th I think that, you know, he would have them all gather. They, they had buttons they gave out. They would have, I think, dinners together, all 29 of them. You know, he he promised them specific, you know, perks and privileges. And he made he made extra committees so they could all be heads of committee, which means another $100,000 for you to spend however you want. And so Washington similarly decided, he decided to fight, okay? And we've seen how the accommodation strategy worked on the national level when Obama became president. And you've mentioned that at the end, there's a moment where uh, former Washington aide and former Obama aide Valerie Jarrett is talking about how she expected the exact same kind of obstruction from the Republicans in 2008 when Obama took office as she had experienced under Harold Washington. And so one kind of presages the other. Washington retaliates, though, by firing all patronage workers, by sending his people into city offices and checking the list of employees to see who was actually showing up for their jobs, because this is something that people may not know, They, you know, older people may know, that uh, all these patronage jobs, a lot of them were no-show jobs. You didn't show up, you were just getting paid, and that way you were getting there buying your loyalty. In one office alone, 200 people are immediately fired. These are the patronage jobs that gave aldermen their power. Was Mayor Washington being, or was the mayor being relieved as not having, or revealed, sorry, was Mayor Washington being revealed as not having power against the aldermen while the aldermen were losing power over patronage? Was political power immediately being reimagined within City Hall when Harold Washington took office? Yeah, it's important to recognize that the, the 29 to 21 vote standstill in the city council was a very real thing. So you know, any bill of any importance there was that kind of deadlock, right? That the 29 didn't have the 30 votes they would have needed to overcome a mayor's veto. So they couldn't pass legislation, but they could prevent legislation. So everything that the Washington administration did, they had to work around their opponents in the council. So temporary appointments and executive orders, and this is all, again, pretty familiar from the way national politics have gone when, <coughs> excuse me, under you know, the uh, the Obama presidency. And, you know, we may be seeing that again. One of the things that we see a lot in today's politics are politicians only speaking to their base. Washington unlocks the alderman's grip on power that leads to a completely dysfunctional city because nothing is being funded. Appointees are not being put in place. There's nobody in charge and the city starts falling apart. So what Washington does is he shows constituents exactly how their aldermen are voting against what is best for them and voting against what the alderman's voters want. It's a pretty dramatic uh, moment in the movie, so I don't want to give too much of it away, but how much do you think that would be a good strategy today? Have political leaders go into their opposition's districts, whether it's in, within a city or within a state level or even on a national level, and talk directly to the people about their representatives voting against their best self-interest due to politics. Uh, how much do you think that only speaking to, their ba to your base instead of confronting your opposition, how much do you think that that could be a success today? Well, Chuck, I don't think you'll be surprised that I think it's a marvelous strategy that more politicians, especially liberal ones, should adopt. And that's why we wanted to showcase, you know, most movies about Harold Washington would probably have ended once he's elected, right? It was important to us in telling his story as one of the last filmmaking teams who will probably have the opportunity to speak to lots of people who were still living during Harold Washington's time. We, we wanted to show what you, what, what, you know, a standard bearer like Washington could do 
with the power once he was elected. And yes, by reaching out directly to voters and by enlarging his coalition, that was what Harold Washington did to win. And that's that's worth emulating. After Washington suddenly dies, reporter Laura Washington says how she felt betrayed. How could he do this to the people who supported him? How could he not keep himself in good health? She also describes how the old white guard selects Eugene Sawyer as the mayor, as he is regular Democrat, the kind they can control, and is black. Lori Lightfoot, Mayor Lori Lightfoot, current Mayor Lori Lightfoot, uh, then remembers being at a huge rally against Sawyer and the white Democrats taking back power. And as the crowd was chanting, no deals, no deals, she says the people who are on the stage leading those chants had actually already cut deals. Was the Washington racial equity movement betrayed by its own people following Washington's death? That's certainly one way of looking at it, that the Washington coalition did not, which at that point was a majority coalition, did not hold together. And that, yes, the, um, you know, Dick Mell and the other sort of machine aldermen who were still in, in in power, they were able to assemble a coalition, a winning coalition that included some black politicians, some black council members. So, you know, it, it, in, in this case, again, it was a matter of the, you know, the two sides sort of jockeying for who was going to control Chicago, as Dick Mel tells us. Uh, you also uh, quote fo- former alderman and Cook County clerk David Orr saying the whole thing was a plot to bring Richard M. Daley into the mayor's office, and he says, unfortunately, it worked. If they were so intent, the old white guard within the Democratic Party was so intent on getting Richard M. Daley back in office, how successful, and it exceeded, uh, succeeded, how successful were they at getting the machine back in operation? Well, we should remember that, you know, Harold did sign the Shackman decrees, ending political patronage in the old style of a mayor directly hiring people for political jobs and making them do political work. So that was that kind of way of doing politics in Chicago was gone forever after Harold Washington. So, I mean, what Richard M. Daley did to solidify his power was very different, right? He used a lot of contractors and he had these independent political organizations um, and the, I mean, the short answer is that money replaced manpower, right? He was able to, Daly was able to run these, as Dick Simpson told us, these presidential style campaigns funded by money, even from outside Chicago, possibly. Don't quote me on that, but 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 certainly by much larger sums of money. Um, so he could, you know, use television more than, the, you know, television became the new precinct captain, I think people would say. And it was a different set of arrangement, these sort of uh, contractor business arrangements, uh, to control power as opposed to the old-style hiring of patronage employees. You show a clip from the nightly Chicago PBS News and interview program Chicago Tonight, where host and creator of Chicago Tonight, the late John Calloway, who was seen as the dean of Chicago TV journalism at the time. He's interviewing uh, Harold Washington in 1983 during the campaign, and Calloway asks the future mayor what he would want historians to write about his campaign if he did get elected. Washington replies that this is a turning point. Considering Washington was preceded as mayor by Jane Byrne, a former but disgruntled Mayor Richard J. Daley aide, Michael Blandick, who also worked for Mayor Daley and became mayor following Daley's death after Daley served a record 21 years as mayor, 
in Washington after he died was followed by Eugene Sawyer becoming mayor through a controversial city council vote. And then Chicago went right to having another Daly as mayor, Richard M. Daly, who broke his father's record and served for 22 years. How much and for how long did any turning point achieved by the Washington campaign last? Is there any lingering legacy today of that turning point? Absolutely. Besides the fact that patronage hiring is no longer possible in Chicago, I, I think we've got to remember that the, just the sort of blatant discrimination and exclusion of people, races, neighborhoods, other groups, women, gays, you know, whatever, the sort of blatant exclusion and, and, and discrimination is simply no longer acceptable in Chicago. We have to some degree moved on, and I and we definitely have Harold Washington to thank for that. He changed this city forever. I think there's no question that the 21st century modern Chicago was made possible by Harold Washington. The city was falling apart under his predecessors, who, as, as I said, were demonstrably incompetent. I'm talking about you know the Balandic and Byrne, and. Harold Washington, he modernized the city, and I think he really opened the hearts of its people that Chicago still has a lot of problems and we still have a lot of segregation, but there's a path forward and we're not certainly not as bad as we used to be. One last question for you, Joe. We have been speaking with filmmaker Joe Winston, who is the director of the recently released Punch Nine for Harold Washington. Punch Nine for Harold Washington is currently showing at AMC theaters in the Chicago area, including new, a new city, Ford City and River City, and just check your local listings to see if it's playing near you. You can find out more about the movie at punch9movie.com, and again, we will be replaying our interview with, from 2009 with Joe, as well as Thomas Frank, about the movie that Joe uh, directed, What's the Matter with Kansas? One last question for you, Joe, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. Martin Luther King has become a political symbol. Most of what he had said is in opposition of what most of the politicians who use him as a campaign symbol suggest. For instance, his opposition to war, his opposition to the military-industrial complex, his opposition to white supremacy. That seems to be either dismissed or ignored. Is Harold Washington today? Because at the end, you start showing all these different people from today's politics saying how important he is for what they, what they have achieved. Is Harold Washington more a symbol today than a set of policies and agenda for racial equity? Have politicians embraced his vision for 1984 or just embraced his symbol? Certainly, Chuck, it was a major goal of myself and the rest of the filmmaking team behind Punch Nine to rescue Harold Washington from what I call the Santa Clausification of, of Harold for having happened to him what many times happened to Dr. King, where the, the, the man it becomes simply a symbol, a personality, and his achievements and his battles are, are all airbrushed away. Um, you know, we had an educator with uh, as part of our team to create a curriculum. And at the time he was teaching in Harold Washington College in the Loop. And he was speaking to a bunch of freshmen. This was in maybe five, six years ago, mostly African-American freshman college students at Harold Washington College. And Dr. Wilson, the professor, he asked them, who is Harold Washington? And 85 out of the 100 students could not correctly answer that question. So movies reach a lot of people. And as our hope that Punch Nine will 
allow us to not only just remember Harold Washington, but learn a few things because the guy had a hell of a lot to teach us. Joe, thank you so much for being back on our show. I truly appreciate it. When you have a new movie coming up, make certain that you get in contact with us. I really appreciate you being on the show with us today and uh, enjoy your upcoming weekend. Chuck, thanks so much. All right, take care. Again, filmmaker Joe Winston, director of Punch 9 for Harold Washington. You can find out more about the movie at punch9movie.com. You are listening to God's Favorite Radio Show. Prove me wrong. This is hell of what you just heard from Joe Winston on his film, Punch Nine for Harold Washington. If that in some way enlightened you about the life of Harold Washington, about what his agenda is, or deprogrammed you from a previously held belief or understanding that he was just a symbol, or made you feel like you actually learned something, or to realize that, geez, three steps forward and two steps back. No kidding. Yes, this definitely is hell. Show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which streams live on Thursday at 10 a.m. Chicago time this week and his podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash this is hell. Or you can show your support for completely listener supported this is hell by visiting this is hell.com and clicking on support. Dan, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding. This week's question from hell is considering all the crises we're experiencing today from wars to pandemics to climate change and everything in between as we approach halloween what trick-or-treater costume would frighten you the most over at facebook neil c says mrs o'leary's cow (laughs) she's the cow that started the great chicago fire Uh. i had to look it up brie p (laughs) says someone dressed as dick cheney with a hunting rifle Remember that? Yeah. And the guy apologized for getting shot in the, in the face. face. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Over at uh, Twitter, hypocrite reader <laughs> says Hillary 2024 pollster. Oh, God. Remember, we're asking, things are horrible. What's a scary costume? <laughs> CKUW says one of those in, these, in this house we lawn signs. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty scary. A little obnoxious. Pen D answers, all of them frighten me because it's telling me people are not realizing that a climate emergency requires we all act. Exceptional answer, Penn. It is true. Cog X Machina says, Ted Nugent in a Kanye 2024 campaign shirt. <laughs> did you hear Kanye bought Parler? I did. I did. That somehow started nibbling at the periphery of my consciousness. Yeah, and I got to get it away from nibbling at my consciousness as well. <laughs> it's just weird. I can't remember where remember where I know stuff from anymore. It just gets in there. I know. <laughs> it's annoying, isn't it? And just like a little bit of the information, like you didn't read yeah. more than seven words. Yeah, totally. Exactly. It's a little eerie. Yeah. Uh, yeah, on Twitter, Korg says, or answers, a properly groomed Steve Bannon <laughs> in a three-piece suit. And finally, by email, Genevieve H. quips, the costume which would frighten me the most? My ex-girlfriend. <laughs> that is pretty good. Genevieve your ex-girlfriend. I gotta write that one down because <laughs> I really like that. That's good. A little Your jazz hands. Yeah. Ex-girlfriend. I like that one. That's good. Uh, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins a piece of our merchandise. You can see all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can still leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page or tweet it to us. But we've got to have it now because we will be announcing. Uh, this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. During this week's moment, Jeff unveils the super truth about angels speaking through deli meats, keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996. This is hell, and if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. Become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon and get exclusive access to our weekly Patreon podcast, which streams 
uh, you know, in podcast shortly after at the same place, patreon.com slash this is hell. On Thursday's Patreon, we got something in the mail this week, and I don't know what to make of it. All I know is the return address is the future, and it doesn't have one of those stamps on it that tells you where it was sent from or the date and time it was put in the mail. It just has our mailing address, but it's it's a weird mailing address because it says, this is Hell 2251 West Devon Avenue, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. United States of America, Western and Northern Hemispheres on the third planet from its sun, about halfway between the center and outer edge of the Milky Way within the local group of galaxies right over by Andromeda, which is a weird address and implies it was sent from a very long way away and possibly from a very far time ago or in the future as well. Now, I have yet to get the uh, courage to open the envelope, but I hope to by the time tomorrow's Patreon monologue begins because whatever is in this envelope is tomorrow's monologue on Patreon. It's odd that we would be coincidentally getting such an envelope from the future following our conversation with Jody Dean on what a socialist United States could look like, how it might function. I have no idea if the two are related, but who knows? Maybe someone living thousands of years from in our, into our future somehow got access to that conversation is sharing with us exactly how everything played out. Who knows? Well, you will if you subscribe to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Also on Patreon, you may have heard me promise last week when uh, Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris of the Poor People's Campaign that I would play an interview we did with her co-chair of the campaign, Reverend William Barber. Unfortunately, I'm still trying to locate that interview. Like I said, we're taking the first week of November off from doing the show so I can work at, among other things, getting our archives back together. Instead, as we've been talking about it so much this week, we are sharing our 2009 talk with Joe Winston on his documentary, What's the Matter with Kansas? When Joe was in studio with us while we were joined on the phone by Thomas Frank, who's the author of the book of the same title. The important thing to remember about Joe's film on Tom's book is it's not entirely about Tom's book. Yes, influenced by it, using some of the same background information and material, providing some similar context, but it is much different and stands alone as a work separate from Tom's book. However, if you already are a fan of What's the Matter with Kansas by Tom Frank? Uh, The film is a refreshing sort of update that has its own storyline while still incorporating Tom's perspective on middle America politics back in the late 19th century, early 20th century, and how they are the complete opposite of what they are today. The movie is free online at Vimeo, so you can make a night of it. Listen to the interview, then watch the movie, or vice versa. But the only way to find out what's in this envelope from the future and to hear our conversation with Joe on his 2009 film, What's the Matter with Kansas is by supporting This Is Hell through a subscription as a Patreon patron at patreon.com slash this is hell if you do become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon. Not only do you get a special code word giving you a discount on all of our merchandise that you can find at thisishell.com when you click on support, but you also get access to 350 past Patreon podcasts. It's like two full years of additional This Is Hell. That's patreon.com slash this is hell. Right now, Jeff Dorchin will be joining us with The Moment of Truth. The rest of your answers to this week's question from hell are coming up after The Moment of Truth, and we will be announcing this week's winner. We'll also tell you what's happening on next week's show. Live from Hangover Country, this is hell, and I know Jeffy is sitting right in front of me, so let's start that up, Dan.
Hildegard von Bingen's Ham Radio and other shamanic charcuterie. It is well known that the 12th century abbess, theologian, poet, mystic, and musician Hildegard von Bingen composed her famous morality musical review, Ordo Virtutum, known in English as the Virtue Play, based on music she heard in one of the many trances during which her divine visions were revealed. It is also known that St. Hildegard, beatified in 2012 by recently retired Pope Benedict, kept a 55-pound, 25-kilogram, dry-cured Westphalian ham in her sleeping chamber in the abbey at Disabodenburg and then at Rupertsburg under a blanket of coarsely woven wool. It should be no trouble, then, to place the two facts, the seeing of visions and the companioning with the ham, one fact next to the other, tie them together with additional facts from little-known sources, bind them with the duct tape of bold supposition, and discern for yourself the super-truth that Hildegard's inspiration for the Ordo Virtutum emerged from no other source than out of her beloved ham in signals from the ultra-high wattage broadcasting antenna of Jesus in his faraway fortress of solitude, heaven. As a child, little Hildegard first started having visions, hearing voices, feeling feelings, and smelling smells when she was around five years old. This was in about the year 1103. At that time, she was known to be fond of carrying with her everywhere she went a cowhide pouch containing a severed, desiccated rabbit's foot. As she grew older and entered the monastery as an oblate and assistant to Sister Jutta, she could often be found in the chapel communing with a braided cross woven of strips of venison jerky. Later, some cured dried beef called speck in a hunk about the size of a full-grown squirrel occupied her teenage years in the Benedictine monastery at Disabodenburg. By the time she became prioress and moved her nuns to St. Rupertsburg, she had already taken up residence with the enormous meat product. Sister Jutta, when Hildegard visited her on her deathbed, expressed her disapproval of the relationship. In Hildegard's own records of her visions, the Scivius, the Liber Vitae Meritorum, and the De Operatione Dei, she never mentions her communications with the ham, which might seem odd given the big deal we're making of it here. We can most logically attribute the omission to Jutta's disapprobation and Hildegard's wounded feelings. Whatever clairvoyant and prophetic sensory extravaganzas the ham revealed to her, the ecstasy, as with all experiences worthy of being so-called, in addition to being ecstatic, weighed upon her with the heavy burden of shame. Still, as has been the way with many nuns, Hildegard persisted in her queer habit. Every night she slept with a cumbersome recumbent joint of preserved pork by her side. Hildegard would cohabit with the ham, lying beside the dry-cured meat, much as a Scottish herdsman might embrace the sheep he's wooing in his highland bower, caressing its cold-cut contours, petting its firm pellicle, whispering into the grain of its muscle, sensible to its every sinew, alert to the vibrations of its bone. 
the two, the nun and her ham, would at times meet on an unearthly plane in each other's dreams and dream together as one, nun and ham, ham and nun, one divine being, being divine one. Where we divine one, we divine all. On a particularly cold Rhineland autumn night, according to a cousin of a friend of a friend's cousin who'd heard it from another friend, Hildegard experienced a rush of sensation in which the entirety of the Ordo Virtutum washed over her in full, including plain chant music, lyrics, book, lighting effects, cast, costumes, choreography, and even the program design. Eureka! she exclaimed on coming down from her trip, but in Latin instead of Greek. Well, of course, we know in retrospect that the production was a smash hit, running for five consecutive centuries on the Saxon circuit. Years later, George S. Kaufman famously said, Satire is what closes on Saturday, but mystery morality musicals are forever matineed, and that von Bingen's is a beaut. He also said, that's no Teutonic turkey, but by then no one had been listening to him for at least a half hour. The flesh of animals, the monkey's paw, and even humans witness the Viking or the New Guinean devour the heart or drink the blood of a conquered foe to absorb his bravery, or the Aguaruna who parlays with his shrunken head. Once living portions of flesh have long been esteemed for their ability to conduct consciousness and power across the boundary between life and death. Hildegard von Bingen's ham radio connection to heaven is far from the only example of cold cuts, salumi, deli meats intermediating between our world and the world beyond. Nostradamus was well known to consult a pistachio mortadella. Gershom Sholem, no stranger himself to the deli counter, describes Rabbi Isaac Luria's longtime mystical bond with a tea verst. It's documented quite well that many spiritualists fell under the spell of Blavatsky's baloney. Rasputin fraternized with a pair of cabanossi. Carlos Castaneda kept company with chorizo. William Blake had a weakness for vice first. In Krakow, Alistair Crowley claimed kinship with the cosmic kielbasa of Khartoum. Rumi made love to a plate of Moroccan merguez. Romanian chronicler of shamanic visions, Ion Kulianu, composed his most famous treatise on the Gnostic Nakhvursts. And of course, who can forget Sri Kriyananda Goswami and his shamanic salami? The super true record is plain. Since the distant past, myriad seers have sought second sight in the sausage links to the spirit realm. This has been the moment of truth. Good eating. So that's super true? It don't get super truer than that. <laughs> Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is Hell. Uh, Dan, please remind us, what is this week's question from Hell for our listening audience, and do we have any more responses before we name this week's winner? This week's question from Hell is, considering all the crises we are experiencing today, from wars to pandemics to climate change and everything in between, as we approach Halloween, what trick-or-treater costume would frighten you the most? We do have... One more response from right. Essel S over at Facebook. Awesome. Who responds, God, 
banging on and on about their favorite radio program. <laughs> That's a good one. So the answers I liked most were Justin saying that the Halloween costume that would scare him the most is Antifa. Uh, Shannon N. saying a sexy nurse holding a giant novelty check made out to Ukraine. I like that one. Mark A. saying sexy Alex Jones, which is just disturbing, Mark, and I'm very disappointed in you. Actually, you're just... That was just very disturbing. Uh, also, Korg.org, or Korg.org, that's what I'm pretty thinking it is, saying a properly groomed Steve Bannon in a three-piece suit, uh, Cog X Machina, Ted uh, Nugent in a Kanye 2024 campaign shirt, CKUW, one of those in-the-house wee lawn signs, uh, Salaj uh, saying that a genetically modified climate change-resistant polar bear dressed as an Amazon delivery worker holding a box with Jeffrey Epstein's remains written on it, Todd saying Henry Kissinger, Hypocrite Reader saying Hillary 2024 poster, all of those are great answers. But my favorite answer to this week's question from hell, as we approach Halloween, what trick-or-treater costume would frighten you the most? Genevieve, you have one for saying my ex-girlfriend, which I assume is your ex-girlfriend, not my ex-girlfriend. Although there is one of my ex-girlfriends, had she, if she did show up at my door trick-or-treating, I would definitely run in the opposite direction. And it's not one that's listening to the show right now, so in case you are one of those girlfriends. Uh, congratulations. Uh, just tell us, Genevieve, what piece of This Is Hell merchandise you would like when you go to thisishell.com and click on support, and we'll get it in the mail to you as fast as we can. My answer to this week's question from hell, again, as we approach Halloween, what's the, what trick-or-treater costume would frighten you the most? At this point, with all the shootings taking place in the neighborhood, the costume that would frighten me the most on Halloween is someone who is holding a gun, while trying to convince me that climate change and the pandemic are both hoaxes and that their children feel uncomfortable discussing the racial history of the United racist history of the United States in school. Thanks to everyone who sent in an answer to this week's question from hell. Dan, we have three guests confirmed for next week's show, but two will be in here or on together. Who have we confirmed as guests for next week's show? We have confirmed C.D. Davidson Hears and Jeff Vandermeer on Tuesday. They wrote the, Nash, the Nation article, Is Florida Becoming a Failed State? Large parts of Florida should be mangrove thickets, prickly swampland, and unforgiving marshy wilderness for our own survival. C.D. Davidson Hears is a native Floridian who grew up on a 40-acre horse farm in North Florida. She works for the nonprofit Education Writers Association while also overseeing the Florida Student News Watch, an organization to mentor new journalists. Jeff Vandermeer is author of an award-winning novel, Annihilation, which is set in the St. Mark's National Wildlife Refuge. His environmental advocacy has included helping save Cypress Swamp in North Florida and sponsoring research into the endangered, frosted, flatwood salamander. And then our final guest of the week, we don't know who our middle guest will be yet. Who's our final guest for the week? Our final guest will be Sudeep Bhattacharya, Bhattacharya, uh, who will talk about his article at hardcrackers.com, Socialism or Suburbia. Sudeep is a doctoral candidate in political science at Rutgers University. He is also a writer, organizer, and you can find his other work at outlets like Protean Magazine, Counterpunch, Reappropriate, and The Aerogram. Never heard of those last two. 
have wow. to look into both of those. <laughs> Reappropriate and the aerogram well, will why'd be. You put it in the copy for me to read to everybody. <laughs> because, because I because <laughs> hanging me out to dry. I want, no, I want to remind myself that we got to put those in our list of guest sources to check out on uh, Twitter. Tune into this week's patreon podcast to find out the uh, last confirmed guest on next week's show uh thanks to this week's producers dan hill Lindsay gory richard norwood thanks to jeff for another moment of truth and to ronaldo magaldi for this week in rotten history also thanks to sebastian vooper alexander jerry and theron hummiston talk to you tomorrow on patreon when we will learn together what is in this envelope that was delivered to us from the future and hear joe winston talk about his 2009 film what's the matter with kansas with the author of the book thomas frank i hope to see all of you tonight during our meet and greet that's really a drink and think this is how office hours happen every wednesday evening from 6 p.m to 10 p.m at carrie's lounge which is located in chicago's westridge neighborhood at 22 251 West Devon Avenue. That's This Is Hell. Office hours every Wednesday evening, 6 to 10, Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. And it is my understanding we will be joined by Alexander Jerry tonight. And while supplies last, everyone dropping by will get a free organic pear. An organic pear of what? I do not know. Okay, it's, it's just a pear, you know, like the fruit. Also, apparently, Jeff Dorchin will be joining us. And I believe the, it, well, it's possible that the new fireplace out back in the beer garden may be functioning by the time of office hours so if you think it's a little bit too cold outside to hang out and drink beer it won't be because there's a new fireplace being installed there's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show and that's by sitting down in the lotus position turning your palms towards the sky focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead and saying the simple words everybody's stupid my demon is on my butt (laughs) my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor and my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>